How are we all doing today? Good? Merry Christmas. Hey, before we jump in, uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about the fourth subject matter of this season of Advent, which is joy. Uh, before we get into that, we want to have a time like we've been doing the past few weeks, which is to have a session where we read scripture, but we also have a time to light the candle. Uh, the light in the candle is kind of re- reminiscent or representative of the light of the world, Jesus, that's come into this world. Um, there's no like biblical mandate to light candles. It's just something that we do as a way of kind of uh, visual way of reminding ourselves as to who Jesus is. So I'm going to have the Allshouse family come on up right now. And uh, Gunther, we got the uh, mic. You guys have a mic? I think Gunther took our mic. No. Maybe we can use one of these mics. Oh, here we go. Gunther's here. All right. So this is Allshouse family. We love these guys. They're going to read scripture, and then they're going to light the candle. Thank you. We're, uh, we're a little nervous this morning. So, but my lovely daughter Eden's going to start off the reading. In these days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. We got a shy one. Okay. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me to me that the mother of my Lord come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Thanks, guys. So this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. We now just want to give our hearts, our attention, our thoughts, our minds to you. And we ask you that you would just speak to us, show us who you are, show us your ways. God, help us to enter into all that you have for us in this moment. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the past few weeks, we've been looking at the subject of Advent, but breaking it down into four main specific ideas or themes or concepts that are kind of scattered throughout the Bible, from hope to peace to last week we looked at the word love, this week we're going to look at the word joy. Really, all I want to do this morning is just kind of look at two specific things with regard to the subject of joy. We'll get to some other passages in just a moment. And then uh, before we jump into that, just two questions I want for us to think about, try to wrap our hearts and our minds around. Number one is what is joy, which we'll look at in just a moment. Number two is how is joy experienced? So we can talk about joy all we want, um, but joy is one of those things that we want to enter into. We want to become a part of our lives. And if it's not a part of our lives, it's not okay to just talk about it because it's something that we all desperately long for. And yet, most of us, many times, we just settle for parodies, cheap, uh, fabricated, makeup alternatives to what real true joy is. So what I want to do right now is before we jump in, I want to just take a look at and try to wrestle and ask the bigger question as to what is joy so that we're all kind of on the same page as far as what the definition of joy is. 
And to answer that, I'm going to let the guys from the Bible Project do what they do so well, along with a convenient, nice little cartoon as well. So here we go. Let these guys talk about joy. Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's Spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust 
Jesus, that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So I love that final concluding thought that Christian joy is a, how does he describe it, is a decision of faith to basically trust this God that has done something. So what I want to do right now is I want to just look at specifically how do we appropriate or appropriate or bring into our own lives, or to put it another way, how do we experience joy? And there's really two things that I want to look at and a handful of different passages that I want to really kind of observe. Number one is we take a look at the fact that it involves uh, acknowledging and or appropriating God's activity. So if you think of it this way, God is up, up to something in this world. He's doing something. And that's what the whole storyline of the Bible is all about, is that God has done something, that God is currently doing something, and that God will one day do something. This is the opposite of a God that is uh, disenfranchised or a God that is absent or a God that is careless when it comes to this world or your life or your suffering. The very opposite is true. We have a God that's very active. He actually cares about your suffering, the challenges, the hardships that you face, your difficulties that you find trying in your own lives, that we have a God that actually cares about this. That's what the whole story of Christmas is all about. It's God entering into this world, not abandoning it. Because um, again, if you think of it this way, if, this, if God really is what the Bible suggests he is, is this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, uh, then wouldn't it stand to reason that this same God also has the free will to completely obliterate this rebellious you know, blue marble of the planet and start all over again? Of course he does. That's exactly what he could have done, but he chose not to do that. In fact, quite the opposite. His aim is not obliteration. His aim is redemption. His aim is to come into the brokenness and do something about the brokenness and then ultimately to bring forth new life in its place. This is the God that we read about in Scripture. So what I want to do real quick as we kind of make note of some of these passages, I want to think about just a little bit further of the Scripture reading that we just read. This kind of sits within the context of the story of Luke where Luke introduces to us the story, some of the key uh, figures or characters in the story of Jesus. Um, one of those is this guy named John the Baptist. The passage that we had just read was uh, John the Baptist's mom, who was also the cousin of Mary. She comes to visit her, and then within this context, as they're dialoguing and uh, talking, it says that uh, in the womb of this mother, her baby, which is John the Baptist, leapt for joy, And then it goes on to say what's really famous in terms of this passage of Scripture referring to Mary. It's what's called the Magnificat, which is basically a song. Uh, The Bible is filled with all forms of different types of literature. Um, It also contains, like, choruses and songs, and this is what the song goes. And what's interesting about this is that it's really all about Mary acknowledging who God is and then ultimately appropriating it. Another word for appropriate is just faith, to trust. That's what faith is. Faith is wrapping the arms of your heart around truth. That's what it is. So if you think of it this way, what Mary does in the song, I'll just read a little passage in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Then Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So even Mary has this sense of joy. She has a deep sense of understanding who God is. But where does her joy come from? And this is the real like, nugget of truth that I want to dig deep into and really try to understand. Because again, for most of us, if, if our lives are defined by anxiety 
or cynicism or anger or bitterness or whatever types of emotion that we have, um, it doesn't have to remain that way. That's, that's what I want you to hear this morning, um, that instead you could have something in its place, something more real, more visceral, more transformative, what the Bible describes as joy. It's, it's available to you, but it involves something that you've got to wrap your heart around by way of trusting or believing or having faith in. And this is what I want for us to understand. This is what we see with Mary. It says that Mary says, I magnify the Lord because uh, my soul rejoices in him. But listen to what she does. She basically points out, verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. So what she notices, first of all, that God actually cares about me. He hasn't ignored me. He hasn't turned a blank stare to me. He hasn't forgotten me. And most of us, I think many of us, we go through circumstances in our lives where that's exactly what we think. We think God's forgotten about me. We think that God doesn't care. If he does think about me, he's totally indifferent to the sorrow and pain and hardship and struggle and yada, yada, yada that we go through. But in fact, the the opposite is actually the case. Mary says he's looked upon the humble state of his servant. She goes on by way of this pattern or habit of reminding herself or acknowledging who God is. It goes out in verse 49. And he who is mighty has done great things for me. So again, imagine her. Here she is, this young teenage mom who is now pregnant outside of the traditional ways. Uh, it's a family style service. Brian, remind yourself, don't get fired. Um, uh, the point of the matter is she's pregnant, right? And she's reminding herself that even in her really challenged and compromised situation, because now she's kind of the brunt of everybody's jokes, nobody believes the fact you don't walk around town and just say, yeah, I'm pregnant, and by the way, I'm also a virgin. That just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen today. It doesn't ever happen ever. But it happened in this context, and that's part of the miracle story. And what ends up happening in this circumstance, she recognizes that he who is mighty, God, has done great things for me. He hasn't forgotten me. This is the gift of God. This is God doing something on my behalf that I'm completely powerless to do on my own. And again, part of the connection between her heart rejoicing in her is her ability to basically to acknowledge and to appropriate what God has done. And thirdly, again, you can just keep going through the rest of this text, which I'll just kind of stop right here. Verse 50 says, and his mercy is for those who fear him. So she's reminding herself again that God is not just present And he's not just present and angry, he's actually present and full of mercy. In other words, he acknowledges and recognizes there's something about Mary's inability to do something that's great, like having a baby in this context here. Uh, But then she recognizes this is God's mercy at work. And as she's reminding herself of these truths, uh, it's shaping the condition of her heart, moving it from fear and anxiety and whatever forms of Cynicism that might even be going on in her life or despair. And it's moving it, migrating it from all of that into a status of of joy. Uh, Here's another passage which we can take a look at. Next slide is in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews states this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to read verse 3, and I want to work backwards, okay? Verse 3 starts like this. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, many finishes with this little uh, clause, this phrase, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, all right? Uh, so here's a question. How many of us struggle with, battle with weariness and faint-heartedness? So here's, here's what he's saying. You want to reverse engineer this. The whole point is that if you are weary and faint-hearted, 
um, here's a way to not be so. Here's a way to reverse engineer your life so that you are working into a different posture and experience a different position, experiencing a different place of life. Here's what he goes on to say, then I'll go back to verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for, uh, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God. So here's the point, is uh, calling into recognition, acknowledgement, Jesus. That here's Jesus on the cross, big question, facing the cross, this excruciating torture device, would you not feel some degree of weariness or faint-heartedness? Absolutely, of course you would. But there's something that's else that's going on in Jesus' experience in that moment without no doubt experiencing some degree of this, there's a joy that's buoying, buoying him up, that's carrying him, that's lifting him, that's causing him to float even in the midst of that. Now, this is, kind of raises an important idea or understanding about joy, that joy does not necessarily mean that it removes or it's something that's available in spite of or in the removal of our circumstances. In other words, we can be in the midst of really diverse and challenging and hard circumstances, and yet, even in the midst of that, have joy. That's what the video called to mention with regard to Paul. Paul is in prison. Paul has been abandoned. Paul is feeling that some of his closest friends are no longer his quote-unquote closest friends. Paul is feeling the weight of weariness, and yet, in the midst of that, he's choosing to acknowledge and experience joy. Why? How? Well, I think Paul just like all other New Testament writers, and what we're being called to walk into and to enter is the way they activated that was they acknowledged and then ultimately appropriated God's activity. So that's where joy comes from. It's not just something that randomly falls upon us. That would be what we would call happiness. It comes from the word happenstance, meaning it just happens upon you. You can be walking down the street and all of a sudden just like you're struck with like, ah, I feel good now. That's happiness. That's different than what joy is. Joy is something that's more deeply rooted in the the soil of God's word. Here's what C.S. Lewis describes. He says something like this. All joy is never a possession, always a desire for something longer uh, longer ago or further away, still about to be. What C.S. Lewis is identifying is that joy is actually anchored in something that God has done or has promised that he will do which kind of basically leads me to the very last point that I want to look at and wrap it up with some thoughts. That joy is ultimately activated by choosing it as the alternative to cynicism and or anxiety. It's something that you and I, we choose. Again, like the video pointed out, it's not so much that we just turn that frown upside down, not in that cliche type of a way, but it does involve, to some degree, us acknowledging the data, looking at the reality of who God is, what God has done what God promises he will do, what God promises he will one day do, and choosing to say, I will anchor the soul of my life in that soil. I will trust this God who's at work. And that's one of the reasons why I think in the passage that we had read, why Mary was able to actually rejoice in God. Did she face a future that was unknown? To some degree, large degree, yes. She had no idea ultimately what to expect, but at the end of the day, she realized that God was somehow behind all of this, working through all of this, and somehow was going to carry her through all of it. 
Uh, same thing with Jesus. Jesus, even though he himself was facing the cross and being abandoned by all of his friends and finding himself in an excruciating, painful, abandoned status, that even in the midst of that, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. And it's that very character study that the writer of Hebrews is basically saying to you and I, as followers of Jesus, as well as to those to whom the writer was writing, uh, they're in that region uh, that were identified as the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, is this concept that you two that are suffering, you two that are going through challenges and hardships, you can walk in joy. You can experience that as part of your life. Listen to how Matthew would put this, or Jesus describes this being recorded by Matthew chapter 5. This is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So again, just pausing about that. Have you ever had somebody accuse you falsely? Have you ever had anybody start rumors about you or gossip about you or unfriend you or abandon you or leave you or say they hate you to your face or any form of uh, hurtful activity that has been done against you? I I think all of us, to some degree, have experienced that. And here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those when they revile you, persecute you, create pressure upon your life. Because, he says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because, he goes on to say, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets, for so they will also persecute you. The point that Jesus is making here is that joy is something that we choose to anchor our hearts in because of something that God has promised to do. So that's where we're at this morning. That's what we're considering and thinking about here this morning. And I think I have one final passage I'll read and then we'll wrap it up. The writer in Peter says this. It's just a great passage. Just listen to it, meditate upon it, think about it, because this kind of ties everything together. Listen to this idea of acknowledging and appropriating God's activity and at the same time choosing to appropriate this concept, this idea, this sense of peace, of joy in our hearts, even in the midst of that. He says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing Tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested in the fire, may be found to be result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was a massively large mouthful, I realize, but just take it apart bit by bit and just think about this. What he's suggesting is that even though you may be going through a life right now that is just filled with hardships, pressure, trial, so much so he uses the metaphor that it might feel like it's a fire, it's like a fire, like your life is being melted, right? Um, that the fire has this unique, interesting effect. On the one hand, it can melt things. On the other hand, it can purify things. And this is what he's suggesting, is that the fire has this purifying effect where it makes something more whole, more pure. That's what he's suggesting, is that the trials, the hardships that we face are like that. But he says, even in the midst of that, we can have our souls anchored in this relationship to joy. Why? Because something that God has done and that God is doing. God is at work. That's what Christmas is all about. 
It's a time to pause and reflect and fix our minds and our thoughts and our hearts upon not just a baby in a manger, but upon a God that has come into this world in the most vulnerable, humble fashion, ultimately to do something about the brokenness and sinfulness and rebellion of this world, so that in the midst of this world, we may have tribulation and hardships, but at the same time, we can be of good cheer because he's overcome this world. So my invitation to you this morning is no matter what type of circumstance you may be coming from, you may be a follower of Jesus and you find yourself constantly dealing with cynicism or anxiety or frustration or anger, my invitation to you is to anchor your soul, your heart, and your mind in the story of the gospel and let that become an impetus to bring about joy. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you've heard ideas and thoughts about Christianity and Jesus, and you're still kind of in this place of trying to make sense of it all, my hope would be this morning that you would see that Christianity is not just simply about a religion. It's not about somehow doing right. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's ultimately about none of that in the sense, in a long sense, and ultimately about a God that loves us and has stepped into our suffering to do something about our sinfulness and our brokenness and invites us to orient our lives towards him, to open ourselves up to this God that loves us and say, God, here am I, or here I am. If you're Yoda, you can say, here am I. And God, I am giving myself to you. I love you. I'm responding to your love that's been demonstrated to me. And that's what this is about. It's about God igniting faith, trust, confidence in our hearts towards him, and then God helping us to walk in this pathway of joy even in the midst of hardships and darkness. So as we close, what I want to do right now, the worship team will come on up. We'll close with a song. We're going to close with kind of our traditional standard of lighting candles. The way that we're going to do this is I will kind of get a candle lit. And here, I got one right here. And then we will basically begin to kind of start the front. We'll move our way towards the back. If you've got kids, do not let them have a candle. There should be glow sticks, right? Or if you are going to, like, hold their hand. So we don't want to fire. We love Jesus, but we don't want to fire. Um, so we will sing a song. Uh, as soon as the song's over, we'll kind of, you can blow out the candle. But here's what I'm just going to suggest doing. We'll kind of do it together. So do the best you can to keep it from falling or tipping over. Um, so how about we all stand? I'll get the candle going. And maybe there's a couple people. Daniel, maybe you can help me. Eden, you want to help me? Come on up front. (laughs) So as you light the candle, you who are lighting the candle behind you, Keep your candle upright like this. Just like that. Keep it upright. Don't bend it. Otherwise, that's how you get wax everywhere. We don't want you to get burned. So we'll turn off the lights in just a second. But I want for us as we tune our hearts to think about who God is, I want us to just think about the simplicity of lighting a candle and what this kind of represents is... This is a picture, I, I believe, of, of what God has done in this world. That the true light comes into this world into the darkness. 
And he calls into his world a small band of people that were really broken, messed up people. We call them disciples. They began to follow Jesus. They gave their lives to Jesus. They became an impetus to create a series of other disciples that began to grow and spread and move and migrate and build and expand. And what you have today throughout the world is a world filled with the story of the message of Jesus, who is the world's true light. Each one of us have been impacted and affected by that one act of God that spread into multiple acts of God. Each of you represent. So let's sing. Just think about the beauty of what God has come to accomplish. And we'll wrap it up.